Hey there, citizen scientists. You are currently listening to one of my older episodes on my podcast. The audio is, I might say so myself, pretty horrible. So uh, all my newer episodes are updated with audio quality and uh, way better sound. So go ahead and check out my newer episodes. And I have plans on redoing all my older ones with my newer equipment. So keep an eye out for that. So enjoy the show. Hey, my citizen scientists. I've been dealing with a whole lot since my last upload and feel like I owe you an explanation since I'm past a week late putting this episode out. I do this podcast on the side and work one full-time job along with two other side jobs, along with piecing these episodes together and the smoke and fire that we just dealt with. I've decided to switch to releasing my episode bi-weekly unless I find enough time to surprise you with an extra. This will only be a temporary thing until my schedule becomes uncrazified. It takes pressure off of me and it helps keep a regular release schedule for you. I am also attempting to transition from opinion and study to interviews for the show. So if you have a story or know someone who might be interested, please send them my way and email me at sciencemeetsbigfoot that's science meets Bigfoot at gmail.com. I'm really trying to get this interview section of my podcast launched and need help from all of you. So please feel free to email me or if you are listening to this on Anchor, leave a message on my page. I appreciate all the help I can get. Thanks, guys. citizen scientist podcast i'm your host tyler and i want to thank you all for being here 
If you've had an encounter or story you'd like to share with me, send me an email at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com or hit that message button to send me a voice message. I can always use it in an episode or just hear your account. There's never any judgment here, so feel safe and welcome as you all are. Today's subject topic and personal study is a very controversial one. She has rocked the Bigfoot community in more ways than one. She has given a voice to believers and skeptics alike. I, of course, am talking about Dr. Melba S. Ketchum. Say what you will about her, but it still stands that she went out, did the work, and dedicated her time to doing the work that it takes to get real solid evidence. That's more than what could be said about the average person in this subject field. This episode is neither in support nor against the Sasquatch Genome Project or any members involved. This is simply meant to be an educational tool for those enthusiasts and skeptics alike in the subject to glean insight and perspective about where each side on the subject is coming from. As this is a deep dive into the scientific aspect to the subject of Sasquatch, we will leave alone her other endeavors for now, that being of the Wu side and epic proportions, and focus in on the hair, blood, and other DNA samples extracted from her research areas. So try to listen with an open mind, kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. The question today, is he real? Will we ever see him or it? Uh, Those are just some of the questions surrounding the mystery of Bigfoot or Sasquatch as you may know it. An organization may be close to answering a lot of those questions, they think, with an event today here in North Texas. News 8's Marcus Moore was at that event and has their answer to the skeptics. Well, good afternoon. Along with the sightings that have been reported across the country, They also say that there have been numerous sightings right here in Texas, mainly on the eastern part of the state along the Louisiana border. These uh, folks who held this news conference today are part of the Sasquatch Genome Project, and their effort is to prove that Sasquatch is real. And during a news conference today, they played video uh, clips of what they claim is Sasquatch. That first clip showed what they said was a juvenile human-like species walking in the woods, another clip showed an older female believed to be over six feet in height. The third clip, this one shot during the day, they said, was Sasquatch caught sleeping. They say that that video was shot in 2005 in Kentucky. As you know, there has been a lot of controversy and a lot of doubt about the existence of Sasquatch and including a number of experts who have dismissed a number of these claims. We've all had experiences that have changed our lives. I mean, literally shook the foundations of what we believe in. And that came through Adrian's uh, visual sightings and, and Richard's visual sightings. And me and my family, we came across a large footprint in the, in, in the Colorado mountains. And, and so things like that shook your reality, shake your world. And you say, well, there's got to be more to the subject than just a myth. They hope that that will uh, help prove to everyone out there that uh, Sasquatch is indeed real. And their work is not done. They they say they continue to collect evidence and also uh, gather videos. Some of that video will be used in the documentary that will be released at some later date. Reporting from Dallas, Marcus Moore, Channel 8 News.
Who and what is the Sasquatch Genome Project? The Sasquatch Genome Project, or SGP, is a collaboration by an interdisciplinary team of scientists from independent, public, and academic laboratories, aided by volunteer researchers and supporters who seek to understand the nature of the indigenous Aboriginal people in North America, commonly known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, primarily through the study of their DNA. The SGP's forensic DNA analysis proved the existence of this human hybrid species in a paper that appeared February 13, 2013 in the De Novo Journal of Science. In November 2012, a Texas veterinarian made national news claiming that genetic testing confirmed that not only is a legendary Bigfoot real, but is in fact a human relative that arose some 15,000 years ago. The study, by Melba S. Ketchum, along with her colleagues in the Sasquatch Genome Project, suggested such cryptids had sex with modern human females that resulted in hairy hominin hybrids. Our data indicates that the North American Sasquatch is a hybrid species, the result of males of an unknown hominid species crossing with female homo sapiens, Ketchum said in a statement. The scientific community was rightly skeptical partly because Ketchum's research, which spanned five years, had not appeared in any peer-reviewed scientific journal. Now, the study has finally been published, and it raises more questions than answers. The piece, written by a team of researchers led by Ketchum, is titled Novel North American Hominids, Next Generation Sequencing of Three-Hole Genomes and Associated Studies, and is published in the De Novo Scientific Journal. The study, which used 111 samples of alleged Bigfoot hair, blood, mucus, toenail, bark scrapings, saliva, and skin with hair and subcutaneous tissues attached, were collected by dozens of people from 34 sites around North America. Hairs were compared to reference samples from common animals, including human, dog, cow, and horse, deer, elk, moose, fox, bear, coyote, and wolf, and were said to not match any of them. The report concluded, we have extracted, analyzed, and sequenced DNA from over 100 separate samples, obtained from scores of collection sites throughout North America. Hair morphology was not consistent with human or any known wildlife hairs. DNA analysis showed two distinct different types of results. The mitochondrial DNA was unambiguously human while the nuclear DNA was shown to harbor novel structure and sequence. The data conclusively proves that the Sasquatch exists as an extant hominin and are a direct maternal descendant of modern humans. Dr. Melba Ketchum. Dr. Melba S. Ketchum grew up in Texas City, Texas. She attended Texas A&M University, where she received her doctorate in veterinary medicine after five years. She had a mixed veterinary practice until she founded DNA Diagnostics. Dr. Ketchum is the president and founder of DNA Diagnostics Incorporated, DBA Shelterwood Laboratories. Established in 1985, 
DNA diagnostics has become a leader in all types of DNA testing including human and animal forensics, human and animal paternity, and parentage testing, disease diagnostics, trait tests, animal and human identity testing, species identification, and sex determination. Most common species of animals are tested at DNA diagnostics. Scientific Journal Ketchum's study has been rejected by other scientific journals. So what about the journal that finally published this study, the Novo Scientific Journal? The journal has no other studies, articles, papers, or reviews. Ketchum's is the only paper that journal has published. No libraries or universities subscribe to it. There's no indication that the study was peer-reviewed by other knowledgeable scientists to assure quality. It is not an existing, known, or respected journal in any sense of the word. This raises some red flags. If the results of the Sasquatch Genome Project are so valid and airtight, why didn't they appear in a respected, peer-reviewed scientific journal? Surely any reputable journal would fight Bigfoot, Tooth, and Sasquatch nail to be the first to publish groundbreaking valid evidence of the existence of an unknown bipedal animal. In fact, researchers from Oxford University and the Lausanne Museum of Zoology announced last year that they would test any supposed Sasquatch samples that believers have volunteered to send. I'm challenging and inviting the cryptozoologists to come up with the evidence instead of complaining that science is rejecting what they have to say, geneticist Brian Sykes of the University of Oxford told Live Science in May 2012. In an interview on the Monster Talk podcast, Dr. Todd Disatel of the New York University Molecular Anthropology Laboratory dismissed the idea that Bigfoot could be a primate that arose as recently as Ketchum's DNA results claim. Quote, if it's a primate that is so similar to us, that's only separated from us about 15,000 years ago. That's us, he said. Quote, even with people of European extraction... We've got 50,000 years of common ancestry since we left Africa. End quote. In other words, there is far more than 15,000 years of genetic diversity among ordinary humans. So the idea that something that split from our lineage would be as different from us as Bigfoot is absurd. It seems that the Ketchum Bigfoot DNA study, which was supposed to rock the world with its ironclad scientific evidence of Bigfoot, is a bust and tells us more about junk science than about the mysterious monster. Scientists will not be impressed, but Bigfoot believers might be. The report is available to the public for $30 from Ketchum's website. DNA sampling. So what can we make of this? The most likely interpretation is that the samples were contaminated. Whatever the sample originally was, Bigfoot, bear, human, or something else, it's possible that the people who collected and handled the specimens, mostly Bigfoot buffs with little or no forensic evidence gathered training, accidentally introduced their DNA into the sample. 
which can easily occur with something as innocent as says, spit, sneeze, or cough. Though the study claims that throughout the project, exhaustive precautions were taken to minimize or eliminate contamination in the laboratory, the likelihood that the samples are contaminated in the field by careless collection methods, normal environmental degradation, and other factors was not addressed. In some cases, the person submitting the alleged Bigfoot samples also contributed a sample of their own DNA to help route contamination, but the possibility of DNA contamination by others, such as hunters or hikers, could not be ruled out. How did the team definitively determine that the samples were from Bigfoot? Well, they didn't. The report details where Bigfoot samples were retrieved. Hair found on tree and hair found on wire fence are typical. In other words, the people collecting the samples didn't see what animals left it there, possibly weeks or months earlier. But if it seemed suspicious, it might be Bigfoot. Alright guys, this next section is uh, Pure Opinion. It is someone's uh, peer review of the study. And uh, so take it as it as it is. It is not the opinion of this podcast. Uh, so it's more for getting a look into the skeptical side of the subject. So hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen. Catchem Project, What to Believe About Bigfoot DNA Science by Sharon Hill. On November 24, DNA Diagnostics, a veterinarian laboratory headed by Dr. Melba S. Ketchum, issued a press release that rocked the cryptozoological world. A team of scientists can verify that their five-year-long DNA study, currently under peer review, confirms the existence of a novel hominin hybrid species commonly known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, living in North America. Researchers' extensive DNA sequencing suggests that the legendary Sasquatch is a human relative that arose approximately 15,000 years ago as a hybrid cross of modern Homo sapiens with an unknown primate species. The study was said to include sequences of 20 whole mitochondrial genomes. Next-generation sequencing was used to obtain these three whole nuclear genomes from purported Sasquatch samples. The mitochondrial DNA was identical to modern Homo sapiens, but the nuclear DNA was described as a novel unknown hominid related to Homo sapiens and other primate species. Thus, the researchers concluded from this DNA data that not only does the North American Sasquatch exist, but that it is a hybrid species. The results of a male of an unknown hominin species crossing with female Homo sapiens. This announcement enthralled the press, but annoyed many cryptozoology and science observers because it came with no public paper and no data, only a long and shady history of partnerships, projects, and promises. Ketchum promised the paper 
would soon follow. When it finally did appear, nearly three months later, it was less than impressive, made no sense evolutionarily, and sparked new controversies about her personal responsibility, the ethics of publishing, and what was going on behind the scenes with this project. Science by press release is an unprofessional form and often is a bust upon peer review. The classic example of this is cold fusion. Melba Ketchum asked the public directly to buy into an extraordinary claim that she has categorized Bigfoot DNA and understand its origin, proposing not one but two unknowns, Sasquatch and an unknown ancestor of Sasquatch. What evidence is there that this is true? We have only her word on the samples in just one paper that, as we will see, has had a difficult history, but there are no corresponding converging lines of evidence. No other reliable physical evidence, traces, fossil record, historic record, or an undisputed clear picture or video of a Sasquatch exists. Moreover, environmental factors have not been shown to reasonably support the existence of a number of large primates reproducing in the wild, often reportedly visiting human inhabited areas. Even besides these obvious hurdles to acceptance, we have many reasons to be suspicious. The Ketchum DNA project spans more than five years. Drama, propelled by occasional leaks that fueled speculation and hype, played out on the internet via social media and blogs. Many, inside Bigfootery, had been following Dr. Ketchum's progress closely for more than a year prior to the official announcement. Hints of the findings were long discussed in internet forums and on websites. It is extremely difficult to parse what is factual and what is unfounded, and sometimes ludicrous, speculation. I have attempted to chronicle this story with the help of those who have been watching it more closely than I, and on occasion, Dr. Ketchum herself has spoken on it. Here, I document the chronology and claims as best as I can, but many of the sources are secondhand. You can make up anything on the internet, and obviously some people do. However, rumor and wild speculation are a major part of this story primarily because the public was not given solid information, but rather an intriguing tale. Questions and disputes about the plausibility of Ketchum's results in the origins of Sasquatch created a schism in cryptozoological circles. The focus of the dispute is often on Ketchum herself, who has control of the entire project. Back to the beginning. The Ketchum story begins in 2008 when her lab was picked to analyze a suspected Bigfoot slash Yeti hair from Bhutan collected as part of Josh Gates' adventure show, Destination Truth, which airs on the Discovery Channel in the U.S. Ketchum appears twice on the show in 2009 and 2010 on seasons 3, numbers 9 and 12 as a forensic analyst. She then became one of the go-to people for those who had collected DNA samples that they thought might be from a Bigfoot. Over the next few years, Ketchum received many additional samples and funding 
from various sources to conduct more analysis of these samples. Mostly hair, but also blood, saliva, and tissue through her own lab, DNA diagnostics, and other laboratories. Uneasiness about the project might start with Ketchum's business dealings. She was affiliated with various corporations registered in the state of Texas, including one called Science Alive LLC. This partnership included Robert Schmalzbach, better known as Java Bob, who was previously an officer under Tom Biscardi's group Searching for Bigfoot, and Richard Stubstad, an engineer who became interested in Bigfoot DNA and was a funder of Ketchum's work. According to Stubstad, some sort of dispute occurred in the fall of 2010 as lawyers eventually managed to cut Schmalzbach and Stubstad out of this corporation venture, leaving Ketchum with entire control of any media from publicizing Bigfoot DNA findings. This was not the first or last of legal dealings where Ketchum was involved. Ketchum had been sued and lost a claim for patient infringement that required her lab to stop using certain tests. In addition, the lab itself was not in good standing with the public, having an F rating by the Better Business Bureau due to complaints for delivering results, a possible problem with the state of Texas regarding payment of franchise taxes, and some lost client contracts. Ketchum responded to these issues by admitting she was naive regarding the people involved in Bigfootery, some of whom she described as turning out to be unethical. She did not know of their reputations, but wanted them removed from the study to protect its integrity. This naivete continued even after the paper hit the mainstream. Ketchum has been associated with several other individuals and projects throughout the years of Bigfoot DNA collection and analysis, including the following. The Olympic Project, a group of researchers studying habitat and attempting to obtain trail cam photos of Bigfoot, Tom Biscardi of Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated, involved with the infamous 2008 Georgia Bigfoot in a Freezer hoax, who collected DNA samples for her project, Wally Hersom, a generous contributor to several Bigfoot research projects, who funded at least some of Ketchum's work, Adrian Erickson of Sasquatch, The Quest, who stated he has high-quality pictures and video of the creatures, and David Politis of North American Bigfoot Survey, who is a Ketchum supporter. Politis, an ex-police officer and author of books about missing persons and the tribe of Bigfoot, has been particularly outspoken about Ketchum, placing the responsibility of the scientific study of Bigfoot DNA all on her, saying each of the samples used had its own specific story. Ketchum Malone had all the data, he says, and deserves the praise. Non-disclosure agreements were signed among participants of the project so that information would not be leaked prior to the reveal. But it was anyways. The sources of these samples supposedly included a toenail obtained by Biscardi from Larry Johnson, blood from a smashed PVC pipe, and flesh from the remains of a Bigfoot body. And you can find this online under Sierra Kills. But it is not clear that all the samples were collected properly. They also may have been exposed to contamination or to degradation. With the Destination Truth samples of 2008, apparently the primer for her interest in the subject, in August of 2010, Dr. Ketchum disclosed on the Coast to Coast AM radio program that she had a scientific paper in the works. The forthcoming paper provided an excuse for her to avoid discussing the results at the time. 
However, in the fall of 2010, Ketchum was doing additional interviews about her work. Ideas about Bigfoot being a type of human were already formed by other Bigfoot researchers. A copyright filing in her name dated September of 2010 described a media project related to, quote, a new tribe of living humans. The theme of a book or video was to be, quote, Sasquatch as a modern human with some genetic mutations accounting for their physical appearance. This copyright notice foreshadowed the results of her DNA study, stating that the project would describe, quote, complete Sasquatch mitochondrial genome sequence and nuclear DNA variations. Ketchum later brushed aside the notice, saying it never came to fruition. But this idea also corresponded to a hypothesis proposed by David Politis in his book, Tribal Bigfoot, published in 2009. Bigfoot community feeds hype and grows impatient. News about Ketchum and the various Bigfoot projects was fed by rumors, speculation, and opinions that appeared unsourced on the internet. The social media aspect, especially personal weblog sites, and the Facebook network have provided a near steady stream of both clear and dubious information. Melba herself became active on her own Facebook fan page in 2009 providing information directly to the public. In June 2012, the public page went away and only the private friend page existed. Several Bigfoot-themed blogs dutifully reproduced any news she posted on Facebook verbatim. She occasionally did address questions about the study on her page, but often referred questions to her publicist, Sally Ramey, who possibly also posted updates to this page. Therefore, it was not clear who was actually supplying the content for the Facebook page. In late 2011, Ketchum provided an update on Facebook that the results were complete and the paper was being submitted for publication. She told her followers to be patient. Good science takes time. Citing the famous skeptical mantra, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, she added, this is what we are doing. She appeared confident that her data would stand up to scrutiny. However, Ketchum herself avoided opportunities of appearing in public. She was a no-show at two conferences in which she was scheduled to speak about Bigfoot DNA, a Bigfoot conference in Oklahoma in October 11, and the Richland, Washington Bigfoot conference in May 2012. For the latter, she completed a DNA 101 presentation via Skype computer connection. Those observers in attendance reported their disappointment to interested Bigfoot bloggers. The community of Bigfooters expressed their concerns that she was avoiding questioning by not appearing in public and completely controlling the discussion while everyone waited, hopefully, for concrete results. However, Ketchum has alleged that she chose not to attend because there was a threat against her person at one of these events. Every week, a diligent few searched the embargoed papers awaiting publication. There were many false alarms. A prolific blogger named Robert Lindsay was a major informant who published inside information and leaks from the various Bigfoot projects and activities for several years. Throughout 2012, he sparked interest on multiple occasions 
that the Ketchum paper would be published very soon. It wasn't. There were rumors that the paper had been submitted to the prestigious journal Nature, but had been sent back due to lack of qualified authors for a testable hypothesis. In February 2012, Ketchum implored her followers to have patience, saying, Our data is amazing and beautiful and all cutting edge. She also noted she was creating a website for non-scientists to be able to access the paper and understand what it meant. This was seen to be in the works in December 2012 on the DNA Diagnostics website. Ketchum continued the hurry up and wait status by suggesting that revisions were requested for the paper, but it was never made clear if it was actually accepted anywhere for publication. She bragged that her paper had double-digit co-authors, many with PhDs and some university heads of departments. In July, she assured followers that the bases were covered and it will be worth the wait. Throughout 2012, her supporters in the Bigfoot community grew frustrated by the secrecy and delays. Confidence in the Ketchum Project and in Melba herself eroded. The red flags noted by commentators included rumors of infighting among the project members, a fractioning of the original group of participants, the ever-moving release date for the data, and concerns about the sample origins and the ability of the results to withstand scrutiny to the scientific community. To be clear, many scientific papers do take months of waiting and back and forth exchanges to revise the manuscript prior to publication. So this frustration by spectators was unfounded and should, in fairness, not have been attributed to Ketchum's creating delays. Ketchum threw many observers for a loop when she disclosed that she had actually seen the creatures herself and described them as peaceful and gentle. In April 2012, she made public a photo she said she took with her mobile phone of an array of sticks in the forest with a suggestion that it was made by the creatures. This blurry sticks picture incited nasty comments on forums and blogs by a discouraged audience who bemoaned this unprofessional behavior. Ketchum claimed to have additional evidence to support the claim that a family of five playful Sasquatch repeatedly visited a site known as a habituation site, but she did not reveal the location or further details. Her comments stated that her personal experiences were not meant to convince the non-believers. The DNA study would do that. Meanwhile, a parallel Bigfoot DNA project was launched by Brian Sykes, a professor of human genetics, University of Oxford, and Dr. Michael Sartori, director of Musée de Zoologie, Switzerland. This Oxford project invited submission of indeterminate DNA samples as part of a larger inquiry into the genetic relationship between our own species, Homo sapien, and other hominids. According to the published schedule for this project, samples were to be collected from May to September of 2012, analyzed from September through November, with a paper to be prepared for publication before the end of 2012. Because the peer review process does indeed take months and perhaps up to a year, we should not expect to see these results published until possibly well into 2013. Dr. Sykes obtained a copy of Ketchum's paper to analyze and told me through personal communication that he has no comment on it, as of the time of this piece going to press, nor any updates on this own project to share. This is a different tactic from the parade of social leaks Ketchum provided. Dr. Jeff Meldrum of Idaho State University 
a well-known academic involved in Bigfoot research, has also steered clear of the Ketchum Project and, instead, backs the Sykes study, perhaps even by submitting a sample towards it. Meldrum was also critical and semi-public through released email exchanges of the Ketchum Science by Press release approach. It surely did not help Ketchum's reputation that she was associated with Igor Burtstev, a Russian Yeti researcher. In the recent past, Meldrum expressed annoyance with the approach of Burtstev and other Russian scientists eager about the study of Bigfoot in their native lands. When fall 2012 came and no paper had yet appeared, things started to turn sour for the Ketchum camp. In September, Ketchum's public relations person Sally Ramey was gone. She was replaced with Robin Lynn Peffer, a woman who claimed a family of Bigfoot, whom she refers to as forest people, lived on her land in Michigan. She is known in the Bigfoot community for her widely publicized comment that the Bigfoots like blueberry bagels. Heffer, however, does not appear to have any experience in either science or in public relations. It is not clear why or how Peffer was named as the Ketchum spokesperson. Observers noted in October that Ketchum's lab building in Timpson, Texas, was closed and up for lease. The phone had been disconnected. One blogger followed up and discovered a backstory of Ketchum's missing payments and her neglect of the business itself. The business, nevertheless, still exists, but at a different mailing address. Results are exposed. Ketchum's key to gaining acceptance for her Bigfoot DNA claims was to publish in a respected peer-reviewed scientific journal. But the plan went awry. The complicated mix of people, secrecy, delays, and promises boiled over in late November when news of the study was outed by Igor Burtsev, the self-appointed head of the Russia-based International Center of hominology. Burtseff issued this urgent announcement on his Facebook page on November 23rd. Quote, the DNA analysis of the Bigfoot slash Sasquatch specimen conducted by Dr. Melba Ketchum, the head of DNA diagnostics, Timpson, Texas, has been over. End quote. He stated that the team of American scientists led by Ketchum analyzed 109 purported samples of the creatures. Ketchum sounded somewhat dismayed when responding to the leak, saying, It is unfortunate that the partial summary of our data was released in this manner. However, I will be making a formal response in the next few days. Even though Igor Burtsev released this, it was not Dr. Burtsev's fault. She later admitted that possibly misunderstandings due to language and his eagerness was why the non-disclosure agreement was breached. At this point, she felt that the study must be addressed instead of ignoring the leak that might cause further damage if left unattended. After the official announcement of the results in November, Ketchum appeared in a few media interviews. In one, she mentioned that the paper of the study would be accompanied by high-definition video footage of the creatures. The origin of this video is the Erickson Project. 
On his website, Erickson mentions the video and many samples they collected that were analyzed for DNA, included in the cache of Ketchum samples. Back in February of 2012, Ketchum had thanked Erickson for funding support for DNA testing. None of the footage had been released except for one still shot of a hairy, indeterminate shape on the forest floor and hearsay that the images were either wonderful or not convincing. The Erickson Project website went down for a while in November of 2011 when it was rumored that Erickson had run out of money for it. It resurfaced in 2012. A few scientists have spoken out, showing enthusiasm and interest in the Ketchum results. Others were scathing in their criticism against her and the entire concept of the study. To fuel further ridicule, the unknown novel DNA was publicized as Angel DNA by a blogger, Lindsay. A few press outlets included this mention in their pieces. Dr. Ketchum denies ever using such a label. David Politis, the director of the North American Bigfoot Search, or NABS, once again threw support behind the results in Ketchum, saying, quote, Dr. Ketchum originally found the combination to unlock Bigfoot DNA and utilized top scientists in various fields to validate her results. The results were independently verified with the group silently sitting on these findings for months, as the results were validated a third and fourth time." End quote. If true, that may explain the delays exhibited through 2010 and 2011. Politis had more commentary to add regarding to the DNA. In the press, he is quoted as saying that, quote, it falls in the realm of human, end quote. Experts in the field of human DNA studies may wonder why they weren't consulted for her publication. The worldwide media coverage over the press release from Ketchum on November 24th had not quite died down when on December 6th, Igor Burtsev was spilling more news on Facebook, saying the paper was rejected by the U.S. journals, but is now under review in a Russian journal. Burtsev issued a scathing rebuke of what he considers the closed-minded American science establishment in their rejection of Bigfoot, noting that the creature's existence is accepted by the public as if scientific truth is somehow based on popular vote. Response from the Ketchum camp was incoherent with Robin Lynn remarking, contrary to Burtsev, that the paper was still under review and extremely scientific. Again, we are left wondering what role Burtsev was playing in this drama. There may be some truth in the allegation that reputable science journals would not touch the study due to its association with Bigfoot, because there is no type specimen or any corroborating credible physical evidence. There is no justification for mentioning a creature known only from folklore in the study. Scientifically, all the results could say is that the DNA is, quote, unidentified, end quote. The paper appears on February 12, 2013, Ketchum commented on social media outlets, quote, buckle up, end quote. And the next day, the paper reappeared along with a new press release. The study, Novel North American Hominins, Next Generation Sequencing of Three Whole Genomes and Associated Studies, which analyzed DNA from a total of 111 high-quality samples submitted from across the continent, appeared in the inaugural issue of DeNovo. Journal of Science. The co-authors were Ketchum, P.W. Wachwicks, A.W. Watts, D.W. Spence, A.K. Holzenberg, 
DG Taller, TM Prykito, F Hang, S Bonger, R Shoulders, and R Smith. The paper describes the conclusion stated earlier in the November pre-paper press release that both the mitochondrial and nuclear DNA were sequenced. The mitochondrial DNA inherited from the maternal side was human, but the nuclear DNA was not. This consisted of a structural mosaic of human and novel non-human DNA. Upon attempting to access the paper the morning it appeared, I encountered the next huge misstep by Ketchum. The journal, De Novo, is a brand new online outlet that consists of one issue with only this one paper. The website is clunky and amateurishly designed with stock sciency photos of animals and test tubes. A strangely placed buy now button was in the center, yet on one page the word De Novo open access floats in a blank box. For a moment, I did think the paper was freely available. Not so. Clicking on the Buy Now button, I was taken to a checkout page that charged $30 for access. Backing out of the site to look for other reactions, I noticed that several Bigfoot bloggers had already obtained complimentary copies, or they had managed to download the paper for free, care of a site glitch. I requested, through email to the address in the press release, a complimentary press copy as well. This inquiry went unanswered. I was provided two review versions of the paper later in the day via other means. Regarding the origins of De Novo, Ketchum said on the day of the paper release that an unnamed journal had accepted the paper after peer review was completed, but their lawyers advised them not to publish due to the disreputable topic. Instead of continuing to shop the paper to other sources, she decided to acquire the rights to this unnamed journal. Suspected to be the Journal of Advanced Multidisciplinary Exploration in Zoology. Looking into the history of that journal, investigators found it was registered under Ketchum's name on January 9, 2013. This led to serious ethical questions about self-publishing. The De Novo website was created on February 4, 2013, just nine days prior to the release of the paper. Ketchum claims to have documentation of the prior reviews and from the acquisition of the new journal. These and any information on which journals previously rejected the paper have not yet been released. In the announcement of the paper, Ketchum mentioned two associated websites, the Sasquatch Genome Project and the Global Sasquatch Foundation. Both were produced with what appeared to be very basic web tools and hosted on low volume servers. Both sites failed the first day possibly due to traffic. Prior to their inaccessibility, I captured some information published on them. On the Sasquatch Genome Project page, Ketchum denied she self-published and took a dig at the scientific community. Quote, We encountered the worst scientific bias in the peer review process in recent history. End quote. Calling it the Galileo effect and suggesting she was treated unfairly. Ketchum's explanation for publishing in De Novo was that she was eager to get the data out and not have to deal with further rejections, hinting that all the previous reviewers were less than decent or open-minded seemingly because they rejected her work. On the Global Sasquatch Foundation site, this statement appeared, quote, Due to the efforts of our founder, Dr. Melba Ketchum, it has been proven that Sasquatch are a human hybrid. 
Here at GSF, we have made it a priority to protect these indigenous people from being hunted, harassed, or even killed, end quote. One could assert that this statement was premature considering the scientific community had not assessed her conclusion. Regardless, she had extreme confidence in her results. The foundation site also included pictures of stick structures supposedly constructed and a photo of a matted horse's mane, an example of what Ketchum has alleged is Sasquatch braids in the horse's mane. As for the paper itself, it was incomprehensible to those without specialized training in genomics or forensics. It began with the premise that Sasquatch exists and this study helps to confirm that. Two days later, Ketchum announced through social media that top-level scientists volunteered to assess her data. A few days later, a statement appeared on the DeNovo website from David H. Swenson, a biochemist, who said he reviewed the manuscript and agrees with the conclusions. This statement, as well as Ketchum's own statements, and those of her spokesperson were also riddled with grammatical and typographical errors. The few experienced geneticists who viewed the paper reported a dismal opinion of it, noting it made little sense. The DNA sequences did indeed contain matches to human chromosomes, a lot of undetermined DNA, and some that, in part, matched to other animals. Thus, the whole sequences do not resemble any known animal and are contradictory with evolutionary biology. In a curious side note, the term de novo is used in bioformatics to designate the absence of a reference genome. Next generation sequencing, or NGS, technology was used in this study to read the whole genome, a process that used to be far more time and labor intensive. There are problems with NGS de novo protocols that can lead to poor data quality. We do not know if the results were properly evaluated prior to concluding that the genome data could be used and if the interpretations of the results is reasonable. These factors will likely come into play during the ex expert external reviews of the paper. Some critics have stated that the DNA may have been contaminated. Kesham assures everyone that she fully accounted for contamination issues and dismisses this allegation citing her own the lab's experience with handling forensic crime samples. The samples have not been made available to others, so there is currently no way for anyone to run a retest to compare results. There appear to be multiple places where the data quality could have been compromised, regardless of how confident Ketchum is in her results. The circus that followed accompanying the official version of the paper was Erickson's video, which supposedly showed a sleeping Sasquatch. The short clip, made public a day later, showed a brown, furry mass sleeping on a woodland floor. The Erickson Project claimed that DNA was obtained from this individual, named Matilda, which was analyzed as part of the Ketchum study providing a link to a real creature. The promised high-definition video evidence was not made available. Within a week, researcher Bill Munns claimed that he had acquired still shots of Matilda whereby the face strongly resembled Chewbacca, a tall, hairy Bigfoot-esque creature from the Star Wars movie. If that wasn't enough to increase the derision from Ketchum's work, what may be the most humiliating find came from careful readers on a skeptical forum. Three of the references cited in the Ketchum paper as prior published research on the creatures were discovered to be questionable in validity. 
One was an openly stated April Fool's prank that concluded that Yeti was actually an ungulate and that it resembled to apes was due to convergent evolution. When confronted with this information, Ketchum denied responsibility, saying she was told to include all references by one reviewer. She did not concede that she knew they were not reputable scientific works. So what does Ketchum have? Is it human DNA with an undocumented variation? Is it animal samples contaminated with human DNA or vice versa? Is it a concocted hoax? Or is it actual unique DNA that may point to the existence of an unknown hominin or two? In a revealing interview on Coast to Coast AM, she told the public she is not after glory, would rather avoid the publicity, and has turned down others' money-making offer. She admitted that she wouldn't tackle this project if given another chance due to the trouble it created for her. She admits that she was not privy to the culture of Sasquatchery that exists where many players try to either one-up or discredit the other person. She is solidly convinced that she has enough data to unquestionably make the case for the existence of Bigfoot even without a type specimen. In the coast-to-coast AM conversation, she likened them to special forces soldiers who cannot be seen unless they want to be. She has completely accepted that they exist across North America and wishes them to be protected as a tribe of people. In the presentation of this potentially earth-shaking discovery, Dr. Ketchum lost every shred of scientific credibility through her short-circuiting genetic experts in the process of peer review. Instead, she attempted to appeal to the popular Bigfoot enthusiast crowd as their savior who has the goods. Even that backfired. She continues to make excuses instead of admitting her errors and poor judgment. She censors those who point out these serious problems or asks questions about them, and she has not exhibited cooperation with geneticists who are experts in human DNA. The people supporting her are not usually helpful to her cause. Her disclosures about her own personal sighting and obvious missteps in the process have done much to sabotage her own credibility. It's not a pleasant picture. For now, the Ketchum chapter in the saga of Bigfoot remains unresolved. There is one thing we can be certain of. This is not the end of the story of Bigfoot. The legend will live on in the hearts of those who believe. slings and arrows uh, both from within the Bigfoot community and, and within the scientific community and now she has a chance to answer back. Uh, Dr. Ketchum, great to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me, George. Melba, did you know it was going to be quite this tough uh, sledding in terms of getting the paper published when you Absolutely started? Absolutely not. <laughs> I thought it would be a piece of cake because the science was good and I was naive enough to believe that and I believe you use those words and naive is a good one. But you, you thought, well, gosh, the, the science is good and the topic is so interesting. How could they possibly resist taking a look at this, an honest look at it, right? Uh, absolutely. And it's I been anything floored. but that? I was floored. Uh, tell me about this journal, uh, DeNovo. 
I don't know about it. I know it's a relatively new journal, which is one of the criticisms that I saw online this week. Well, gosh, Melba must have made up this uh, this journal herself. Well, it's, that's not the case, and I've sent you documentation, haven't I, at this point? Yes. Um, what happened was that after having a lot of biased review, and I mean seriously biased review, and I've sent you documentation of that also, um, we just, we found a, a young journal that was fairly new, and we were uh, submitted our manuscript there because they were leaning more towards next generation sequencing technologies, which is how we got our genome. And um, I spoke with the editor. The editor agreed to send it out to people that you know work with next generation sequencing. And we got back passing reviews, uh, passed with revision, and then we made some revision and responses. And uh, we were told that the journal would publish. Um, and it was legitimate peer review. I have no idea who they were. I have the peer reviews. Uh, I believe I sent you the peer reviews where you could see where they accepted it from the button that was pushed uh, at the top of the of the reviews. And um, once they received, we received the reviews back and they agreed to publish, we were ready to send out a press release. And all of a sudden, I, just a few minutes before we were going live with it, I get this email, which I furnished to you, Basically, the editor is saying that his lawyer, um, you know, doesn't want him publishing this. And in a further conversation, and as alluded to in the email, um, the lawyer will quit him if he goes ahead and publishes this. Also, that it scared him so bad that he was afraid it would ruin his career, uh, much like it's ruined mine, uh, because nobody wants to be associated with something that's... Um, allegedly a myth and uh, therefore they backed out at the last minute so he felt really bad and and I was able to actually acquire that journal because that was the only way I was going to be able to take those peer reviews and some legitimacy with it because um, you know otherwise we'd have to find another journal well we've already spent nearly two years with journals and I'm not going to wait another five years to go through a hundred journals to get one that will be fair if you could get one, if that's a, a yeah, neat, if we could even get one. So we acquired that journal and and very quickly threw together a new website, new name, and published published it. Now I have had nothing to do with publishing. Uh, actually, the, one, the people we acquired it from they helped make changes and put it up and had it ready to go for us more or less. It still has some flaws, but we we wanted to get the paper on out because it's been long enough. You, you were hoping that just the, the subject is interesting enough that even if you uh, didn't write the paper and dot all your I's and cross all your T's to every everyone's specification, that they would uh, at least think, wow, this is a novel approach. It's an interesting topic. It's uh, earth-shattering. It's an importance. Let's, uh, let's take a look at it. Let's at least publish it, put it out there, let people read it and, and evaluate it. But that, I, you know, I read the give and take between you and a couple of these journals, and it's outrageous. I mean, it's not... It was my impression that some of the complaints uh, from some of these people who sent in comments uh, were from people who had not read the paper at all. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. Because I would come back with our response that, that's already in the manuscript if you will read it, basically. And that happened multiple times. And not only that, there, were, there was one review that mocked me. Uh, the, I think the worst thing that happened was one of the major publications uh, wanted to have another look at the paper. They said, make all these changes, document that you've done everything they've asked you to do, and then send it back to us. Well, we did that, 
only, uh, they asked us for, if we could get just one genome. We got three. And they were the same species. They also, when we pulled the mito out, it's the same mitochondrial sequences as we had done individually prior to the whole genome. I mean, it was it's definitive proof. And when we sent it back, one of them wouldn't even review it. And then there were three others that, um, you know, they just, there was no excuse. One of them still didn't read it. And the I other one just didn't believe it. The phrase that is used in your paper is the uh, the information, the data, is consistent, reproducible, and novel. Uh, you had to beat around the bush last time you were here. You didn't want to spill all the beans before you um, before you before uh, the paper was published. Tell us now. Give us the thumbnail sketch of what the paper says, what your findings were. Okay. Uh, the first thing we did was we when we extracted these samples, two labs extracted, both forensic labs extracted these samples. We washed the samples. We did all the techniques, we screened them for contamination, there was none. Uh, we went in there and then screened for species with, with mammalian primers, which makes it where any animal would show up, including humans. And all of, the, all of our samples came back human. And this was after the hair had already been looked at by a forensic hair specialist that does primarily human, but also animal. And he had said it was novel, it was not the same, it was not human hair. And it was didn't match any of his animal knowns that was it was tested against. So we, we knew we had good clean DNA. We went forward after screening and we started outsourcing because I knew there would be a problem with if if just one or two labs did this. So we sent these samples out. Nobody knew what they were. And we sent uh, the samples to family tree DNA. There's they specialize in mitochondrial DNA. Uh, we got twenty whole genomes. Uh, 10 partial genomes, and the rest of the samples we just screened because, I mean, you get that many that are running the same, uh, that pretty well tells the story. Non-human hair given human human sequence. And then, we, of course, we had some, some non-hair samples in there, too, but the majority of it was hair. And once we got those results, um, we knew that they didn't exactly look human, so we decided to go after the nuclear DNA, which uh, the mitochondrial DNA, I might offer, is is maternally related, it comes from your mother only. Whereas your nuclear DNA comes from your mother and your father. So we started with the nuclear DNA and we started getting really strange results. And uh, normally when you when you run a particular primer pair, and we tried to do as many universal primers as we could, as well as human and ape specific primers, uh, we would line, whenever you select a particular spot, you're gonna amplify on the, on the DNA. Um, you'll get, um, like, when you look, you've seen on TV where they have gels with bands on it, and they all are just running across at the same level. Well, that's what you get. Well, we didn't get that at all. We got weird-looking bands that were all different sizes, yet we had already species identified them as humans. And so this was bizarre, and, and I guess I didn't tell them once again what they had. So I get this email from one of the PhDs at the lab we outsourced nuclear, testing do we also let them do some mito testing to, to back up the other mito and um she said we have this really weird fragment it's, it's not as long as it should be it's, it's like 490 something bases and we were supposed to get 500 and some odd bases and a base pair is, is just the building block of dna and the length of it is in base pairs so with that said, it was a shorter one, and she blasted it in GenBank. Now, GenBank is a sequence repository uh, that all the scientists, they put their sequences in, and then you can go compare your, your unknown sequence to it. 
Well, she blasted it, and it didn't come up matching anything that's ever been put in Genbank out of millions of sequences. And so she writes in this email, she says, what did you send me? <laughs> we don't know what this is. Have you discovered a new species? I have that in an email. And uh, so we finally had to tell them what they were testing. So. And they didn't like it? No, none of them liked it. <laughs> I, I take it back. I, Family Tree was the very much the nicest one about it. But some of the others, we had one threaten us if we used their name. We couldn't use it. Well, you paid them. You, you had... You paid them. They had to. You had to use oh, the results. Oh, they only had their money when, when they found out. Well, that's not very scientific. And wouldn't wouldn't let us use anything. We did get um, our pictures out of it, and that was it. But I mean, they did the work. It's just not like uh, Dr. Melba, crazy Dr. Melba, in the closet in her house doing all the DNA oh, no, testing. No, no, no. We chose You'd... the best places in in the country to do it. Right. Um, I, I shopped around and, and found out who had the best reputation. They were accredited labs, they were major university labs, um, you know, there were state crime labs. I mean, this was not my, my little lab, it was really big name labs. Texas A&M, uh, they backed up um, the results I wasn't able to use uh, the name of. <laughs> they did it and they saw the same strangeness that the other university did. Help me understand this, Melba. Uh Okay, so, you know, a lot of the emails that I've got after your last appearance here, and, and since then, uh, people say, I don't understand it. Why can't it just be human? And I know in some of the criticisms, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but they'll say, well, gosh, it must be human contamination. But you have hairs, these hairs that have human and non-human DNA in them. It's not contaminated. It's not some other species. It's one species with this two kinds of DNA inside, right? No, no, that's not quite right. Okay. Uh, right. What you've got is... You know, a physical hair that's about the size of a horse mane hair and wavy. And it's about three or four inches long. And it's, it's got a natural end on it. It's never been cut, never been dyed. Um, when you look at it under the microscope by a forensic hair analyst, it does both human and animal. And he had a whole lot of knowns of North American animals to compare it to. Um, it didn't fit any species that he had seen before. So he, he screened it first. We've got non-human hairs, twice as big as human hair. And then we test it, and the DNA from those hairs in 100% of the cases was modern human female mitochondrial DNA. It had it was no animal DNA in it. It was the hair that was animal-looking. Okay. So the, those who say, well, gosh, it, it looks to me like it's all human. There's nothing novel about it. Well, that was fine until we went into the nuclear testing. Right. The whole genomes is what had you, and the, and the different places on the DNA that we looked at uh, for the first time. Uh, and then we found all this really strange sequence that's just not in Genbank. I mean, there'll be bits of human sequence in it, but then there'll be a lot of novel sequence, different sequence in there that's not ever been, you know. One thing about it, at least we could use Genbank blast with or to check the sequences against what's in Genbank uh, without uploading them. So we were able to do that, and we have trees to that effect. A lot of the supplementary data is, is trees that were generated directly on GenBank. One of the things I did not understand, and I'm asking you now to, to help me uh, and, and us non-scientists understand this, is you mentioned in the paper about 16 different types, uh, that, and you're suggesting that these individuals were not all from the same area? How do, you, how do you make that determination? And am I explaining that correctly? No, that's right. Um, basically, when you look at... When you do mitochondrial DNA testing, 
you know, it's very popular nowadays to have your mitochondrial DNA tested so you know what your origins were, where you came from. Right. And uh, it's like a big tree, and it starts out in Africa, and then it moves to the Middle East, and then it starts branching into Europe and branching into Asia. And each different mutation, the mutations happen just ever so often, very slowly with mitochondrial DNA. So when it mutates and becomes a new type and makes a new branch, where that happens usually you can kind of trace the DNA to that particular spot. So, you know, say somebody is um, Native American, uh, they would have a branch that would come out of, from the Middle East through Asia and across the Bering Bridge into the North America. Okay. And a particular group assignment uh, of a letter designation, like you know, a, a C or a D, uh, for instance, are both Native American types that have originally came through Asia and across into North America. But you can, as you talked about this before, but just to reiterate, you can weed out an animal. It's not a possum. It's not a bear. I mean, oh, the labs you're sending it to, they can tell right away, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, because the thing is, when you do, uh, when you sequence the mitochondrial DNA, that's, that's what forensic scientists use for a species test, is you have, you know, these universal primers that will work on everything, and you run, you sequence your DNA from them, and uh, it's going to tell you what species you got. Okay, uh, much more to come with Dr. Melba Ketchum about this groundbreaking study looking at uh, DNA samples from purported Bigfoot. Stay with us, everyone. Much more to come on Coast to Coast. We're talking with Dr. Melba Ketchum about a groundbreaking study of DNA in purported Bigfoot creatures. And uh, she's got about 111 samples that were analyzed in blind tests conducted by several reputable DNA labs. The results are astonishing, and yet the uh, the reaction in the scientific community, kind of across the board, you got a couple of scientists who are saying, well, that's kind of interesting, I'd like to know more about that, which is the, the reaction you'd hope you'd get. And then you've got some people that say, it's absolute nonsense, it's totally ridiculous, it can't be, and therefore it isn't. And you get the feeling that some of those folks didn't really read the paper, and certainly didn't read it with an open mind. We get back into the nuts and bolts about this study, right after this on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. My guest is Dr. Melba Ketchum. Dr. Ketchum, where can people read the, the paper? Uh, the DeNovoJournal.com is the link uh, to get to the paper, and uh, there's, there are links to, to download it from there. Okay. And uh, are a lot of people downloading so far? Uh, they were until we had a glitch with the website because we, it was put together in, in a hurry. So, uh, But we've, I think we've got that fixed now, so it, it'll be available for download anytime somebody wants it. All right, you had 111 samples that were tested, uh, collected by uh, different different uh, researchers around the country. Uh, Dave Politis, I know, and his uh, North American Bigfoot folks helped you find some. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so what, what kind of quality control testing do you do on the samples? Uh, on quite a few of them, we actually had the people that, that gathered the sample, we had their DNA to compare it to, to make sure that, um, you know, their, their DNA wasn't contaminating it. Uh, we also have all the lab people uh, on file, so we knew it wasn't any of our lab people either. Um, like I said, we washed the samples. A lot of the samples came from either eyewitness or controlled areas where there were sightings. The Erickson Project, for instance, they actually had a study going on that was overseen by PhD in wildlife biology. And uh, they used, I mean, most of the collectors did use gloves and did proper procedure in actually collecting the hair. 
there's the project uh, collected saliva, and uh, they would use sterile paper plates because most of your paper products when packaged are sterile and, uh, you know, or close to it, and therefore they're, they're a good thing to use. They use paper plates with sandpaper that's uh, glued to it to help pick up extra cells for the DNA, and they would put, the, put it in Tupperware, so you'd have to have a hand to open it. And then they would wait for them to come in and eat. The, the Sasquatch got used to eating, you know, these plates. And the people that, that lived on the site would prepare it so they were not scared of the people particularly. They'd come in, they would eat the meal, and then they would collect the plate, immediately take it in, uh, put it in a, in a brand-new bag, and, and put it in the freezer. So, you know, uh, there were eyewitness sightings along with research projects uh, that were well run under the circumstances. Uh, the other good thing about the Erickson samples, especially, uh, we have a little short video that we went ahead and released to the public uh, of, of the one that's nicknamed Matilda. She's a young female um, sleeping in the woods. Um, that particular family unit was very unusual in that they got so used to their people and used to being fed uh, that, you know, they could actually come pretty close to them at times. And so that, that's a very good video for sample 37, which is one of the few female samples in the study. There's a guy uh, who, of course, became famous because he claimed to have killed a Bigfoot, maybe more than one, and he had a couple of samples of Bigfoot meat that he supposedly sent out. And, and even now, after your paper is out, uh, I see you getting blasted online by people who say that either you lied about the meat or he lied or... Uh, I guess the question is, is that, that meat from a purported Bigfoot part of your study? Uh, yes, it is, and I'm going to give you my opinion of what I think has happened. First of all, anybody can go online and look and tell that the, the picture of the two samples are different. The picture in our paper we have, it's long, wavy, mostly white hair. There's no undercoat. Uh, the sample is not dried looking. You can see it's fresh, pretty fresh meat on it, you know, muscle tissue and subcutaneous tissue. And uh, that's why we turned it up where you can see both the haired side and the, the fresh side. And we even had, you know, one of the, the complaints was that our samples were degraded. We even had histopathology done, and the cells were all intact. It's fresh. There's no bacteria to speak of on the sample. So very, very pristine sample. If you look, um, there's a certain blogger out there um, that put some pictures up about uh, the one that, uh, they sent to Canada. Well, first of all, the DNA is different. So it's a different sample. Let's just start by saying that. Uh, if it had been the same sample, the DNA would have run the same. Second, and we have, you know, tremendous amounts of testing. We have a whole genome on that one. Whereas they took seven months to get, you know, just a very small section of mitochondrial DNA, among other things. So uh, with that said, though, you can look at the picture and see that the, there's an undercoat uh, on the... Uh, samples that ended up in Canada. I don't, uh, you know, my opinion is that perhaps they got worried because it, these things are human to a large extent and um, there could be, you know, repercussions because of that. And I, I really think that's what happened, but that's just my opinion. I, I'd want to re-emphasize this. You mentioned it sort of in passing during our first segment together, uh, but I think it really bears repeating, and that is that one of the labs that had one of these samples was curious about it. They sent it to something called GenLab, which is this gigantic bank of DNA information, and it didn't match anything else. I, am I understating oh, we, we the... We that all through the paper. Uh, we started out um, 
we blasted the uh, the individual testing and the mitochondrial testing, and then at, when we did the whole genome, once we aligned uh, a section, well, we did 2.7 million bases uh, across approximately. There were the three samples varied some, but they approximately the largest one was 2.7 million bases, and I think it was 2.4 million bases. Uh, these samples, we could keep them in our system, but yet blast them or search against GenBank, which is your depository. Uh, when you publish a paper, you're supposed to put this into GenBank for other scientists to look at, which we attempted to do. Now, I sent you a thread of emails uh, from one of my co-authors trying to get this done, and uh, I'd ask you to make a comment on that. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty weird uh, that, you know, it, it certainly does look like they don't want it going in there. Right. They refused it. Uh, they First, they they wouldn't accept it because it, it didn't have a species name attached. So we wrote them back, basically, and then it said that, uh, well, uh, use human, use homo sapien. Um, but if you do, we have to have a signed written permission from uh, the donor. I mean, good luck getting a test like to sign their, their DNA over to uh, And a couple other rules that they had in there. So we couldn't do that. And, uh, so you, then, can't, you, just, you can't just put it in GenBank blind. No, that you have to fill out this, all this information okay. on it. Right. And whenever they found out apparently what the subject matter was, uh, you know, they <laughs> they just came back and finally we said, if you don't do it, you know, if you don't put, let us put it in, we don't know what the species is because there's not a species name on it yet. You know, we don't. You know, we can't do this. This is the whole point of our paper: is that this is a new hominid, and we want to get these sequences in. And if we, you know, if you don't get back with us, I mean, we'll just have to put it in with the paper, which is what we've done. We've provided those sequences that we used in the paper as supplementary data, you know, for people to look at. I mean, we're transparent with this. We didn't want any problems with this, but, you know, that's why I sent you the documentation. Uh, people, I think, think that I'm just saying this stuff, but I've got the paper trail to prove it, and I hope you can acknowledge that. I, I do acknowledge it, and I hope that you'll put it, uh, put that information, that trail of information and paperwork uh, where other people can read it. Let me ask you this question, uh, Melba. Um, the, the idea of interspecies mating, that, uh, you know, we humans, we can't mate with a chimpanzee. How is it, how do you figure this can work, that somewhere 13,000 or more years ago, these two species mixed? Well, first of all, the species identity shows it to be human. But when you look at your whole genome, nuclear DNA, it is so different that, um, it's, it, you know, it must have been just kind of a fluke in, to happen that way. I think that's one reason the established scientific community really has a problem with this, because they've not seen something like this, not to this degree. Now, you know, as you know, uh, it's been proven that we have little bits of, uh, as a human species, that, you know, some of us have some Neanderthal in us, and, which is another species of human, and, and some of us have some Denisovan from Russia, the, the finger bone that was found. We have some genes left from, from that particular hominid. Uh, well, this really isn't different except it's kind of in reverse in that we're probably the lesser amount of, of uh, human DNA in the nuclear part of the DNA than, than it is with us and the Neanderthal and Denisovan. But it's still kind of a similar scenario. But the sticking point is that the mitochondrial DNA is 100% human. The other sticking point is that it's a recent hybridization. Um, I had a real interesting uh, a scientist come forth and 
actually support um, our strange my, uh, electron microscopy on it, where we had double-stranded DNA and then single-stranded DNA, and he was talking about that uh, this would happen if the hybrids didn't fit real well together uh, because you have stretches of sequence that just didn't align with one another. And, you know, that kind of makes sense. Um, so, you know, that some of the scientific community is starting to come out, and uh, we have, you know, now sent it. Um, we were, you know, we're asked if we would let, you know, some more famous, quote, scientists look at it than, than what I am. And, and we've already sent the, the data over to them, so there'll be some independent analysis. Even though we've done everything about twice on all of this, they're going to get their shot at it. And uh, plus we're letting, you know, certain scientists, you know, really go through the paper. As long as they are open-minded, you know, they'll see how much science is in the paper. But they have to be open-minded to start with. And that's all I have for you this episode. Uh, before I wrap it up here, I just wanted to spend a minute or two uh, talking about um, how I've spent a lot of time doing research on Dr. Ketchum since uh, embarking in on this journey of this episode. And I have to say, there is not a whole lot positive out there that is not an interview with her herself. Um, I find this to be extremely troublesome as it proves what kind of mentality runs rampant through the Sasquatch and the scientific community. It's troubling to see and read the amount of negativity that I have uh, encountered since diving into this topic, yet hardly any resources that I have found that actually praise the Sasquatch Genome Project as a whole or the doctor as a person and her actual attempts to find answers toward the subject exist. To state fact that I have found since doing this podcast episode, uh, she and her team actually went out and got evidence. They made a call for other researchers to turn in any evidence to support the cause. The peer review and the NDA violation debacle aside, to my knowledge, no one has even attempted what she and the SGP have accomplished. And then not even to mention all the scientific pushback and straight ignorance from all of us, they all had to deal with. This just proves my theory that until we have a type specimen, i.e. a body, a body part, anything to do with this subject will always be viewed as ridiculous, and anybody involved will always be viewed as chasing unicorns and mocked or scoffed at, if not worse. To wrap up today's episode, I will just say this. We all need to come into this subject with a completely open mind. Just because science says Sasquatch is not so, does not mean it's not there or it's not real. A good example of this is the panda bear. From 1869 until 1929, a period of 60 years, 6-0, a dozen well-staffed and well-equipped professional zoological collecting teams unsuccessfully sought an animal the size of a small bear in a restricted area, which was thought to be a myth. Until in 1929, Theodore and Kermit Roosevelt found, shot, and killed this mythical creature. There is far too much evidence to support the idea that the Sasquatch not only is an extant creature, but one that leaves behind hair, nails, 
natural clues such as stick structures, feces, finger, knuckle, butt, and footprints. As talked about throughout this entirety of this podcast episode, they've even gathered DNA evidence in the form of hair and other types of samples. We have gathered recorded and professionally analyzed vocal recordings, recorded and professionally analyzed video footage, prominent doctors, PhDs, and the like showing interest, collecting evidence to analyze, writing books, papers, lectures, and making national TV appearances, all in the name of support to help prove the species' existence. So in closing, I want to thank you all for tuning in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard, make sure you share this show with your friends, coworkers, Zoom meetings, uh, anywhere you can think. I don't care how you share it, just help me get the word out. I am looking uh, to transition this podcast into an interview platform. Uh, so in order to do that, I need help from all of you. So uh, as I said earlier in this episode, if you have had an encounter and or know someone who has had some crazy stuff happen and or seen some crazy stuff, uh, you are the ones that I would like to hear from. So uh, email me at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com. Or if you're listening to this on Anchor, uh, you can leave me a voice message on my podcast page. So don't forget to love yourselves, love each other, be kind, be safe, keep an open mind, and until next time. Thoughts are with you, holding hands with your body.